singing, you may be seated. Edward, if you'll come and preach for us this evening. We're continuing our series in the Psalms. Tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 128. If you'd like to turn there, we'll begin by reading through the Psalm and uh, then break it down into its many parts. There's a lot to take note of in this beautiful psalm. So let's begin in verse 1. Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands, happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this word, and dive right into it. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege of breaking the bread of life. Thank you so much that we can gather here this evening. No better place to be than in the house of the Lord with the Lord's people. Bless us, Lord. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As you know, this is one of the 14 Psalms of degrees. Psalms 120 to 134, also known as Psalms of Ascents that was sung by worshippers as they made their way up to Jerusalem to attend one of the three great annual feasts, uh, Feast of Passover, Feast of Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. It was a long uphill climb to the feast for anyone who came from anywhere outside of Jerusalem. We read of the child Jesus and his family making the journey. If you look in Luke 2, 41 to 42, you'll see it tells us there that His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem. That was no small distance for a family with small children. Um, Usually in the company of other people from their village, they'd make the journey on foot. I know that in many of the uh, pictures, Bible pictures, we see people riding on donkeys Most people walked. They couldn't afford donkeys, especially if they came from a poor village like Nazareth. And so the whole family would walk a journey of four or five days, and they'd camp every night by the roadside, and they'd be accompanied by friends from their home village. And the distance from Nazareth to Jerusalem was about 70 miles. And what made it especially tough was that the last 20 miles was all uphill, from Jericho, down in the Jordan River Valley, 800 feet below sea level, to Mount Zion, which is the highest point in Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level. So if you do the math, that's about 3,300 feet. They climbed in that 20 miles. And if you look at a picture of that area to this day, when you see the path that they might have walked, It's just dirt and rocks. It's an arid, dry climate. So it was a really tough journey for them. Singing was perhaps one way to distract from the rigors of the trip. 
It's no, no uh, coincidence that they sang. At least they could take their mind off how difficult the journey was. Psalm 128 is a family hymn, and it's linked to 127, where it speaks of the Lord building a house in a city in 127, making families fruitful with children. In Psalm 128, uh, 128 we progress from children to grandchildren and progress also in happiness. In Psalm 127, children are arrows. Uh, in Psalm 128, they are olive plants. In Psalm 127, they speak with enemies in the gate, uh, which means they're either fighting people trying to get in or they're negotiating with people trying to get in. But Psalm 128 closes with peace upon Israel. Now, for some of these observations and many that follow, I must confess my indebtedness to Charles Spurgeon, who wrote a wonderful series of books called The Treasury of David. If you've never read them, I recommend you can get it free online. The Treasury of David was compiled by Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, over a period of 20 years, and it is magnificent. A commentary on the Psalms. Um, the uh, sermons were published at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, in London, a church which stands to this day, which I've been privileged to visit several times, and they still preach the word of God there, and they still are fervent soul winners. Uh, he left a lasting legacy. So, with that, let's begin by looking at the first verse of Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, you may not be aware of it, but Psalm 127 ends with a blessing. If you look at the, if your Bibles are open, look at the last verse in Psalm 127 starts like this. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them, talking of his children. The word happy there, translated as happy, is the same word that is blessed here at the beginning of Psalm 128. So the one ends with a blessing, the other one begins with a blessing, and uh, the, the lesson for us is all those who respect and honor God enjoy a blessing from him. It's a wonderful word, blessed, or bless, or blessing. And it appears throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, it refers to a spiritual inner state of God-given joy and contentment that cannot be affected by external circumstances. That is a fantastic def definition of blessing. And when you say to someone, bless you, and I say it all the time to people, what you're saying to them is you're asking God that they would enjoy a spiritual inner state of joy and peace. That's what it means to have God's blessing on you. This present evil world is under a curse, but by the grace of God, it is possible to live full, joyful, productive lives victoriously as children, joint heirs of Jesus Christ. You know, just that phrase is so incredible, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God incarnate, who died for our sins, who created the universe, who now reigns on a throne in heaven 
And scripture tells us we are his joint heirs. And as I remarked recently, not one of us did the slightest thing to deserve that. In fact, we did a whole lot of things not to deserve it. But here we are, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. His, his heritage, Christ's heritage, is never misery. It's always joy. That's your heritage as a Christian. That's your inheritance. This present evil world is under a curse. But by the grace of God, it's possible to live joyfully and victoriously. Spurgeon declared that the fear of the Lord, which is an attitude that means to respect and honor God, is the fit fountain of holy living. I like that phrase. We look in vain, this is what Spurgeon said, we look in vain for holiness apart from it. That is, apart from God's blessing. None of those who fear the Lord will ever, sorry, none, of, none but those who fear the Lord will ever walk in his ways. You know, it's idle to talk of respecting the Lord, fearing the Lord, if we act like those who have no care whether there is a God or not, and we heard all about that this morning. It is not enough to say it, we must do it. Man's heart, says Spurgeon, will be seen in his walk. I was thinking of this as pastor was preaching this morning. A man's heart will be seen in his walk, and the blessing will come where heart and walk are both with God. To enjoy the Lord's blessing, we must be active and methodical in our walk with him, walking in his ways, not our own. God's ways are blessed ways. They are paved with present blessings, and they lead to eternal blessedness. Who wouldn't want to walk? in that kind of a life. So let's look and see what verse 2 has to say. For you shall eat the labor of your hands. Thou shalt eat the labor of thy hands. Um, the general doctrine of Psalm 128 verse 1, that respecting and honoring God brings his blessings upon everyone here in verse 2, is made very personal. It speaks of you receiving his blessing, you eating the labor of your hands. And again, Spurgeon comments that this is the life of God's saints, to work and to find a reward in hard, honest work. Uh, he must have been one who really admired people who worked hard. He wrote a lot about honest labor as a Christian. He notes that though we are in God's hands, we are to be supported by our hands. He will give us daily bread, but he expects us to make it. All kinds of labor are included. One toils by the sweat of his brow, and another does by the sweat of his brain. And Spurgeon says it's generally healthier to work by the sweat of your brow. Uh, you know, and I've never been able to get that right. Uh, my dear friend Ryan sitting in front here, he does a lot of sweat at my house with his brow and his brawny muscles while I sit with my nose in the book, sweating my brain. Hey, there are all kinds in this world. When we are laborers together with God, a promise is set before us that labor shall be fruitful 
and that he who performs it shall himself enjoy the reward of it. The context here leads us to expect family happiness. I said at the outset that Psalm 128 is a family psalm. Our God is our household God. You know, pagans have literal household gods in the form of idols. And they put that idol in a particular place in the home because they expect it's going to bring blessing on their home and protection against evil spirits. Well, if you're a Christian, you have a household God and you bring him into the house with you and uh, your family enjoys the house together and the, there is a spirit of God's presence in a Christian home. It's a blessed thing. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking into a house and you feel there's just something creepy about this place. There's, it's just, there's a darkness here. That happens to me often. On the other hand, you can walk into a Christian home and there's joy. They're just, the place is lighter and the people look brighter and the kids are better behaved and it's just wonderful. That's the way it's supposed to be. Our God is our household God. Idols, on the other hand, are, powerf uh, on the other hand, are powerful, powerless to help and are incapable of blessing. And we have a God who is always present with us and blessing us. If we fear him, we may dismiss all other fear. When we walk in God's ways, we are under his protection, provision, and approval. Danger and destruction shall be far from us, and all things work for our good. So we then look, we're still in Psalm 128. Uh, actually, verse 3, yes, we've just switched from verse 2. I'm sorry, I've got so many things going in my head about this psalm. I've been living in it for so long, and I keep wanting to divert, but we've got a limited amount of time, so I'll stick to the script here. To, <laughs> to reach the... Oh, don't tempt me, brother. To reach the fullness of earthly blessings, a man must not be alone. Uh, verse 3 begins by talking of your wife. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine. Your wife, um, a helpmeet was needed in paradise, and she is no less necessary outside of it. The word helpmeet, by the way, comes uh, from God's original, original statement recorded in Genesis where he says to Adam, uh, I'm going to provide a helpmeet for you. Well, that word meet actually means suitable. So if we translate it properly, we would say, I'm going to provide a help suitable for you. Now, helpmeet has become an actual word, but it does mean, in the context of marriage, a help suitable for you if you're a fortunate husband. Um, Proverbs 18.22 says that the one who finds a wife finds a good thing. Amen to that. It took me 25 years to find a Kentucky girl to marry. Um, but note also that sometimes God designs our lives to be without a partner, husband or wife, as it was with the Apostle Paul, the greatest figure in the New Testament wrote uh, a large portion of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul was a single man. Now, he was probably married at some stage in his life because you could not be a Pharisee unless you were married. So his wife might have died at some stage, and, um, 
Paul lived alone. Um, and so God designs our lives sometimes to be without a partner. If you are without a wife, God will compensate you in other ways while you walk with him. You're not a second-class citizen if you happen to be single. Psalm 128.3b, what does it say about her? She shall be as a fruitful vine. To complete domestic bliss, children are sent. They come as the lawful fruit of marriage, even as clusters appear on the vine. Good wives are also fruitful in kindness, in thrift, in helpfulness and affection. If they bear no children, and some of them bear no children, they are by no means barren if they yield their husbands the wine of consolation. I'm quoting Spurgeon. I just, the way they wrote in those days was so lovely and poetic. He says, They yield their husbands the wine of consolation and the grapes of comfort. Truly blessed is the man whose wife is fruitful in those good works. And then part three of verse three speaks of by the sides of your house. She is a faithful housekeeper. Her chief fruitfulness is in the inner part of the dwelling which she decorates. And <coughs> husbands, uh, I'm sure you've all learnt as I learnt very quickly, when your wife wants to decorate the house, just get out of the way. Yes, dear, it looks great. I approve of it. Um, and uh, when it's finished, it looks fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, wives generally don't ask us husbands for our opinion. They just decorate it, and there it is. Beautiful thing. By her, by this godly wife's loving care, her husband is made so happy that he is glad to acknowledge her as an equal with himself, for he is hers, and all that he has is hers. Hallelujah. And then we're not done yet with verse 3. It speaks also of your children like olive plants round about your table. The psalmist intended to suggest the idea of, a young, of young people springing up around their parents, even as olive plants surround the fine, well-rooted tree. Spurgeon notes that the picture is very striking for those familiar with olive country. And I am familiar with olive country. I had the, the great pleasure when I lived in London to befriend an Italian man, Antonio, and his wife, Emma. And they lived and worked in London, but he owned an olive uh, grove in Italy in a little village called Paicchio near Naples up on the side of a mountain. And uh, when he went back one year to go and harvest the olives, I asked if I could accompany him, and it was an absolutely wonderful week. And what it taught me was the closeness of families around that almost sacred tree. The entire village owned portions of the olive grove, and the entire village depended on the oil from those olive trees. And when it was time to harvest, all the families would go out to the olive grove and they'd go to their section of the olive grove and there'd be one granddaddy tree and it was surrounded by other trees and the whole family would harvest the olives and then take them into the village to go to the, uh, the olive press and the very first pressing always went to the owner and in the most delicious olive oil you've ever tasted. It's 
like extra, extra, extra virgin olive oil. The, the stuff that you buy at the supermarket that says it's extra virgin olive oil is at, mo at best the second pressing. The first pressing goes always to the owner. And they pour olive oil on everything they eat. And why not? It tastes so good. So it's, this, it's a wonderful picture that uh, the psalmist is painting here of the olive plants around the table. Um, then we come to 128 and verse 4. Behold, that thus the, shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. It is not to be inferred that all blessed men are married and are fathers, but that this is the way in which the Lord favors godly people who are placed in domestic life. If you want your whole family to be blessed, men, you need to set the example by seeking God's blessing first. The possession of riches will not ensure blessings. The choice of a healthy and beautiful bride will not ensure blessings. The birth of numerous, numerous lovely children will not ensure blessings. What ensures blessings on a family, on a home, on the wife and the children is a godly husband who puts God first, walks with God, is blessed by God, and that blessing spreads through his family. And the best part of that is a family that is blessed by God, that comes into a church like this, is a blessing to the entire church. And that godly church where the blessing of God spreads everywhere then spreads out into the community, and the community is blessed. And that's one of the awful things that happened in our country, where godly churches have faded away. And so when you go out into the darkness, there's not much light there to bring them back to the Lord. There must be the blessing of God flowing from the influence of holy living, and it begins in the family and it begins with a godly man leading his family in the way of the Lord, or a godly man who lives alone, nevertheless walking with God and being a blessing in the body of Christ and to the world outside. So Psalm 128 and verse 5, we'll break that down into two parts, begins by saying, The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion. A spiritual blessing will be received by the gracious man. He is one among the many who make up the congregation of the Lord. His tent is part of the encampment around the Old Testament tabernacle in the New Testament. His presence with his family is a vital part of the blessing that radiates through the life of an assembly of God's people. And I've just drawn your attention to that. And uh, it reminds us also of Numbers 6, 24 to 26, which tells us, what the nature of that blessing is. The Lord bless thee and keep thee or protect thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee or show his favor towards you and give thee peace. Boy, what a great blessing to have. And it's free. Actually, it's not entirely free. It's going to cost you your whole life. God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. So you're just going to have to give him all of yourself. But if you do, in exchange, you get all of him. So how can you possibly lose? Give God all of yourself and you get all of him and you will be blessed. And 
in the second part of that verse, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. A godly man will have a patriot's joy and a father's peace. Through men like him, God will make his country prosper. The blessings of the Lord, and Spurgeon again comments on this, uh, begin in the home, flow to the church, through the church, to the nation. Um, and we can see the positive aspect of these blessings and the negative when the blessings are withdrawn through the history of our nation. That was Spurgeon speaking over a hundred years ago, and it applies to us today. So we come to verse 6. The first part, Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children. We live our young lives over again in our grandchildren. It's one token of our immortality immortality that we derive joy from extending our life in the lives of our descendants grandchildren are special and you never really understand that until you have some and they are just wonderful and they do kind of extend your life and the second part of that verse and peace upon Israel now Psalm 125 closes with the same thought. If God's chosen people, Israel, are at peace, then all the world shall be, should be glad because all the world will benefit from it. They shall have peace from the God of peace. You know, I believe I've said this before, that the, the nation of Israel, as it exists today, is powerful proof for anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear Israel is living testimony to the living God who chose that land, who chose those people, and who uh, for thousands of years has worked with them. And it's, uh, Israel, as it stands today, is also living proof of the accuracy of this book, the testimony of this book, which speaks so much about Israel and God's blessings there. To this day, God's blessing is clearly evident in the life of Israel. Uh, it's a nation that ranks amongst the, words, uh, the world's smallest. Uh, in terms of size, it's a tiny sliver, but it happens to be right in the middle of the geographic, uh, geographical map. It's the crossroads between east and west, north and south. It's um, 265 miles long by 70 miles wide at its widest point. I mean, it's tiny. It will fit comfortably into Kentucky. And its population of under 10 million includes just over 7 million Jews. About 4.5 million people live in Kentucky, so we're very similar to Israel. Did you know that another 6 million Jews live in the United States? The largest population of Jews in the world is in this country. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons that God has blessed this nation for so long. There are about another two million who live elsewhere. For a total worldwide population of 15 million, the, the world population is about 8 billion. And yet 15 million people continually affect the course of this world and are continually the focus of this world. Jews are about 0.2% of the world population. And, but Israel, 
ranks as one of the top 20 wealthiest nations in the world. That tiny little speck of land is in the top tier of wealthy nations. And there's another metric that's even more startling. Uh, the greatest measure of scientific achievement is to be awarded the Nobel Prize that was established in 1900. Since that day, about a thousand men and women have won the Nobel Prize for some branch of scientific achievement. 22% of winners of the Nobel Prize have been Jewish. 22%. In other words, they number at least 11,250% above average. 15 million people make comprise out of that population. They contributed 22% of 1,000 Nobel laureates. By contrast, there are almost 2 billion Muslims in this world. And four of them have won Nobel Prizes in the scientific field. A Jewish prize winner for, uh, prize winner for chemistry, Aaron Chechenover, said this, the human brain is the only natural resource that Israel possesses. Uh, he might have added, but we have a supernatural resource that is our major possession. Another explained that Jewish cultural values based on family upbringing, dedication to education, self-motivation, persistence, resilience in the face of adversity, and just plain hard work undoubtedly contribute to their successes. Education for Jews has been put on a pedestal for millennia dating back to the Torah Torah, that very word which applies to the first five words of scripture, uh, first five books of scripture, Torah means teaching. And they place to this day a high emphasis on teaching. Jews know that to defend a country, you need an army. But to defend an identity, you need an education. And now, perhaps you understand why education is under assault in this country why our children, uh, our schools are producing barbarians who don't appreciate America, who don't appreciate our history, and don't appreciate our God. And it starts in the schools. Much of Jewish success is attributable to their response to handicaps placed on them since time immemorial by those who want them to fail. And Jewish people do not allow failure to stand in their way. And so the psalmist calls for peace upon Israel. He speaks in Psalm 28 throughout of God's blessings upon his people and upon that land. And through that blessedness, the whole earth would benefit. And that's been true for thousands of years and will be very true during the millennium. When the Messiah returns, our Savior comes back and rules from Jerusalem and brings this world back, both the natural, the physical world, the spiritual world, back into submission to its creator. And then we will all appreciate God's blessings. 
But in the meantime, it's up to us. God's spiritual land, God's spiritual Israel, because that is what we are. It's up to us, who are very much in the minority today, just as Israel has always been in the minority, and increasingly threatened by the prevailing culture, just as Israel has been threatened for millennia by those round about them. It's up to us, Christians, in churches like this, in a country like this, to shine and to uh, carry God's blessing just as Israel has borne it for all those many years. If we could catch that vision as a church, that as God's spiritual Israel, we carry this responsibility spoken of here in Psalm 128. And in, throughout this Bible, if you read the New Testament, every place where it talks of the responsibility of Christians to affect the culture, if we take that really seriously and make it a priority in our prayers, in our commitments, in the way we live with each other, in the way we interact with each other, we have got the most blessed church here, a happy church, a church of people drawn together here because we all share one thing in common. We are hungry for God. We seek him. We want more of him. And we are so fortunate to have this place. Let's never take it for granted. And let's walk with him day by day and pray with our families day by day, with our brothers and sisters day by day. Every opportunity we have to fellowship. Let's respect God and honor God and hunger for God's presence so that what we build here might be as a beacon to this world lost in darkness. And while we do that, no matter what happens in the world outside us, we will always enjoy the Lord's protection and blessing and favor. What a great way to live. And because you've all been such an attentive, wonderful audience, and you've listened so carefully, and God's blessing is so apparent here, we finish early, and you can get together and fellowship and appreciate each other. And then as you leave, carry that glow out into your community. Father, thank you.